Today we are going to talk about the Twitter hack. My name is Sherry Davidoff. I am the CEO of LMG Security. And my name is Matt Duran. I'm the Incident Response Team Manager for LMG Security. So let's dig in and find out what happened in the Twitter hack and how it affects us. Let's learn how to protect ourselves and our accounts. So to begin, what happened, Matt, in this case? All right, so on June 15th, a number of very high profile Twitter accounts, including people like uh, Bill Gates, Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, Joe Biden, and many others, suddenly started tweeting about an offer to double Bitcoin for people. It's usually referred to as a Bitcoin scam. So they're saying, hey, we're doing this massive charity event. If you send us $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, we'll send you back $2,000 worth of Bitcoin, but only for the next half an hour. That's so, so generous. It is so generous. Is it because it of the coronavirus? Out, it was because of the coronavirus in a couple of cases. It is, you know, time to, uh, time to give back to the community. So as it turned out, uh, and for those of us who work in cybersecurity, this came as really no surprise once we saw the content of the messages, but that was not actually those people tweeting. It was not Bill Gates, it was not Kanye West, it was not Kim Kardashian, which is disappointing. But what was actually happening is a Bitcoin scam. And uh, we, we came to find out pretty quickly that Twitter had actually suffered a pretty major internal breach of their administrative controls. Uh, someone had gained access to an admin panel on the Twitter backend and was able to take control of those accounts, in, verified accounts, including those of uh, you know Joe Biden and Barack Obama and a number of very other uh, or very high-profile individuals, and they were able to tweet on their behalf. So as we dug into it a little bit more, we realized that, uh, or Twitter announced that a uh, a break-in had occurred that had affected about 130 total accounts at Twitter. Uh, that's how many were touched. Of that 130, 45 had had their passwords reset and were, uh, were actively tweeting this Bitcoin scam. 36 of those accounts had their direct message history read, and eight of those accounts had their Your Twitter Data archives downloaded, which is, uh, is pretty bad when it comes to personal data. So let's talk about the potential impact of the loss of this data. A lot of times people don't really take their social media accounts seriously. I mean, people have their Twitter accounts hacked and sometimes don't even bother to reset the password for weeks or months. But when you're talking about major political figures um, or these verified accounts, it really becomes a whole different ballgame. Imagine that you could have sensitive conversations between leaders of nations, things like that in their DMs. The hackers could use these accounts to hack other people, which they sort of did, or at least they defrauded other people. You might have conversations that are of national security interest. We would hope not, but who's to say it doesn't happen? I mean, if Barack Obama takes selfies with leaders of other states, maybe they're also chattering over Twitter. Who knows? No, it's a, it's a great point. And the, the big thing that we have to remember here is that we don't know exactly what's in those message histories. I mean, we've seen what everyone keeps in their email and in their chat clients. I mean, it could be things like, uh, you know, access codes, usernames and passwords, banking information. There's really no limit to what could potentially be included in that data. And plus, it's easier to target people if you know that a, a major leader likes Cheetos and paddleboarding or things like that. It's just easier <laughs> to social engineer them down the road. So that Twitter exactly. data can be very useful for facilitating ongoing attacks. Um, but I'm just curious, who actually conducted these attacks? Was it some sophisticated cyber criminal operation that maybe resold that data on the dark web and is going to use it for future attacks like advanced persistent threat style? I mean, you would hope so from an investigation standpoint, but as we found out recently, it was not. 
Uh, this was not a sophisticated attack. This was not a sophisticated hacker group. This was essentially a group of kids, basically. I mean, we know for a fact that the mastermind, as these being quoted in the uh, in publications now, is a 17-year-old kid from Florida. Uh, there is also Isn't another- his mom, friend. because his mom was interviewed. Exactly. They interviewed his mother, which I need to read that interview. A she said time. she they talks to him every day, and she's sure that he didn't do it. <laughs> Innocent sure. until proven guilty. Exactly. But the people who are behind this weren't really sophisticated cyber criminals. And actually, the original intent of this hack was not to facilitate this massive Bitcoin scam. Right. The, uh, the people who were behind the attack were originally only interested in this, according to them anyway, because the hackers actually did their own interview. Uh, what they were looking for were access to what are referred to as OG or original Twitter accounts. So these are old Twitter accounts that are really unique handles that people might find really valuable. And there is a collector's market for these in underground forums and darknet marketplaces. We're talking about things like at six or at a or at John Smith or something like that, that if you're signing on to Twitter now, there is absolutely no way you would be able to get a username like that. What they would do is take control of these accounts uh, using the Twitter backend and then advertise the accounts for sale to collectors on these forums for anywhere between uh, one, 2,000, sometimes more depending on the, uh, the quality of the account. But as we see in several cybercrime gangs over the last few years, somebody went rogue. And one of the people who had access to this admin panel decided they wanted to use it to facilitate this big financial scam. And so they did. They took over all of these big verified accounts. They started tweeting out this Bitcoin scam. And I think at, uh, at the last guess or the last check, uh, we were looking at- $120,000. $120,000 yeah, yeah. worth of cryptocurrency that they were able to siphon off of people by using this kind of a scam, which is for a day's work, not too bad. Except that now they're being hit with, I think, over 30 felony charges. So well, I mean, yeah, is there's it worth that. it? I don't know. <laughs> so let's talk about how the attackers did it. Twitter came out and said that it all started with phone social engineering. And then from there, the criminals were able to access the internal network and credentials. And um, they found more credentials in Slack, correct? So that's that hasn't been verified yet, but there is a story that came out from uh, I believe it was the, the New, New York, York Times. Times. Yeah, yeah. So there, uh, there is there are some indications that uh, some of the credentials that were fished through this phone social engineering uh, engagement that they basically uh, went on uh, allowed them access to Twitter's backend Slack communication channel. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Slack is a, uh, a chat and uh, information sharing client. A lot of major companies use it for communications. Uh, pretty nice client to use, but in gaining access to that Slack system, they gained access to all of the messages that those users had sent or received. And in one of those messages was the credentials for the backend administration panels. So many organizations have rushed to the cloud in the past few months, and all of the, all the sensitive information is out there in the cloud, often without executives or management teams even realizing that their sensitive data is there. I mean, do you think Twitter realized that they may have had sensitive information in Slack like that? Oh, I would assume they probably had no idea. I mean, the individual users probably vaguely remembered at some point sending those credentials to someone else through Slack. But I mean, it's one of those rolling message systems. I mean, you send a message and then, you know, a few hours later, you forget it's there and it just kind of rolls back into your history. And a lot of times people don't really maintain those kind of systems. There's no automated roll off that they have configured for it. So that information just be basically becomes stored in a filing cabinet forever. And it's just right there for access.
So, okay, we know that the criminals got in, their initial avenue of attack was phone social engineering, and then they were able to somehow escalate privileges and gain access to internal support tools, which Twitter has since restricted that access. Let's talk for a moment about how phone social engineering works. There's a few different ways that it is commonly done. You, Twitter has said it was a phone spear phishing attack, and that can mean a number of things. We see voice phishing, so criminals will call up certain people, let's say they had some understanding of of who uh, of the internal Twitter structure, the organizational structure, they could call up somebody and pose as being part of IT, part of the help desk, or maybe a third party vendor. Hey, your computer is acting up. Um, we're here to help. Uh, we'll just need your password to debug. I know that sounds crazy, but it works quite often. And that's called voice phishing or vishing. Another method, which I suspect is more likely in a case like this, is uh, SMS phishing or smishing. That's where the criminals will send text messages to their targets. Like, for example, someone could pretend to be somebody's boss and say, oh, hey, hey, Matt, I really need you to send me those credentials. It's super urgent. And uh, by the way, I also need you to get me those gift cards. Thanks. Love your boss, right? Um, and that can also work a surprising amount of time, especially because of caller ID spoofing, which I know, given your background as a voiceover IP engineer, is something that you specifically know a lot about. Yeah, so uh, phone number spoofing is uh, is a pretty commonplace in a lot of phone-based phishing attacks. And uh, basically what the uh, the attackers will do is they will use the system that they're using to complete these calls or send these text messages, and they will make it appear on the receiver's end that they're sending from a known phone number, or at least not the phone number they're being sent from. Uh, this type of activity is pretty trivial to do when we think about uh, email spoofing and how simple it is to mock an email address and make it look like you're emailing from somewhere that you're not. Uh, phone number spoofing is roughly that easy. And in fact, in a lot of cases, it's easier. There are apps you can get for a cell phone that'll do it for you. I mean, it's very simple to do. And it can be very, very easy to trick people when they think that a request is coming in from a known or trusted source like this. So again, if I get a text message from a number and a caller ID and an identifier that showed that it was you know, Sherry or a member of our finance team or something like that, I'd be much more likely to take that request seriously than some random phone number coming out of like Albuquerque, New Mexico asking me for the same thing. So you can see it becomes much, uh, much more efficient to go after people in an organization when you have access to that kind of technology. And I agree with you, Sherry, I think that's probably what happened here. Yeah, don't trust caller ID. So I'm sure more details will come out as we go along, but those are just some things that all of us should keep in mind when you think about phone social engineering or phone spear phishing. All of us can really take some measures to protect ourselves. So let's talk about the accounts themselves that were hacked. First of all, I am surprised um, that Twitter did not have an early alert on all of these accounts that were getting hacked. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's a, a little bit strange that, uh, that there was not any kind of, uh, you know, advanced intrusion detection or something like that, that might have given bird. Twitter, yeah, exactly, that, uh, that. that, you know, a little bird that might have told them that uh, some of these high profile verified accounts were having these kind of back end configuration changes made to them. Um, yeah. So one of the one of the big things is when we're talking about like presidential candidates, like Joe Biden's account being taken over, uh, you would you would hope at least that there would be some kind of verification in place where if the owning email and owning phone number of the account was being changed on Twitter's back end, there would be some kind of additional block in place that would prevent just a basic attacker from being able to 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 do that and take control of the account. Yeah, and it kind of makes me wonder, you know, if the same IP address was logging all into all these different accounts, I would imagine that would have tripped some trigger. But I kind of yeah. wonder if they had hacked an employee's computer and were remotely going in through that. 
so that the access to all those different accounts was not as likely to cause an alert. We certainly see that yeah. all the time in your work studying banking Trojans and in LMG's forensics laboratory. Oh, of course. And uh, again, the uh, the situation with Twitter is still new enough that, I mean, there's a lot of speculation as to exactly how this hack took place. Although now that everyone's been arrested and, uh, you know, they're they're kind of singing like birds against each other. Uh, another Twitter joke. <laughs> uh, I, I think we're going to get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more concrete information on how exactly they were able to facilitate this kind of a compromise. And frankly, I'm, I'm really right. interested to hear about it. So what we do know is that after the attackers got access to that admin panel, they were able to change the phone numbers and email addresses associated with those accounts. Um, and that way they could bypass two-factor authentication by having an email sent to an address that they themselves controlled. And that really shows you the limits of two-factor authentication. Let's talk for a moment about how attackers can bypass two-factor authentication and how we can protect ourselves. You want to give us a little summary map? Sure. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned before, one of the big things that attackers were able to do that we consider to be, uh, you know, a major security step for most accounts is bypass that second form of authentication that a lot of these accounts had in place. Um, and they were able to do this by taking over the email account, by funneling the information about this be or about two-factor being disabled into accounts that they were controlled. So the actual user of the account didn't know any of this was happening. That does not mean two-factor authentication is broken and we should never use it though. So we want to make that one perfectly clear. You should still have multi-factor authentication enabled everywhere that you possibly can, but there is an important distinction to make here. Not all two-factor authentication is created equal. Uh, there is a major difference in security between like application-based two-factor authentication and SMS-based two-factor authentication. And uh, that, that's something that needs to be taken into account whenever you're setting something like this up. So if you get a text message sent to your phone, that is not as strong as if you have like an authentication app and for reasons like SIM jacking. So criminals can, for example, um, leverage uh, access to a telecommunications provider. Let's say there's a phone company employee that they have in their back pocket and they can call them up and say, hey, change this person's number to a new cell phone. I'll pay a hundred bucks. Or sometimes, probably more often, they just call and scam a phone company employee. Oh, hi. I'm uh, Matt and I have a new cell phone. Um, can you please change my number to the new cell phone? And here's my social security number. I could not possibly find that on the dark web, right? The not. problem is with all of these breaches we've had in the past, it's really easy for criminals to get sensitive information that allows them to, to uh, bypass the knowledge-based authentication members that are supposed to keep your account secure at these telecommunications providers. So SIM jacking is a very real attack where they can take over your phone, then they'll get your pins. Or of course, if there's email-based authentication and they've broken into your email, well, they've got that second form of authentication as well. So consider disabling those as backup options because criminals will take advantage of that whenever it's available. And instead, just require like an app. So to wrap it all up, let's talk about what we can all learn from the Twitter hack and how we can protect ourselves. So number one, training. Phishing has been a problem since the dawn of time, or at least the dawn of internet time. So make sure that everybody in your organization is aware of the risks of phishing and that they know it's okay to stop and think 
and to verify using some out-of-band authentication me mechanism. So you get a text message from the boss, maybe I'll just call the number I actually have on file and verify it, for example. So training is absolutely critical and making sure you have some processes for checking and verifying the identity of people who are, uh, who are sending your staff messages. We also wanna be really sure that we're, uh, we're being really careful about where we're storing sensitive information like passwords or you know, personal information about employees. Uh, in the case of Twitter, if the Slack uh, you know, avenue for getting those admin credentials does turn out to be true, then that does show a major deficiency in the, uh, the security of using a, uh, you know, an overall chat client like that. Now, it's not to say that those clients uh, or those chat systems are bad necessarily, but they're really not designed to be filing cabinets for all of your information. You don't want to be storing documents in Slack. You don't want to be storing passwords or user authentication credentials. Or, or if uh, you, you know, are, you need to recognize that risk and take exactly. precautions to secure it. But I mean, I would, I think you'd probably agree that most organizations are storing way more sensitive information in these cloud-based collaboration systems than we even realize, correct? Oh, sure. Yeah. Between, uh, between email and, uh, you know, online chat clients and shared document repositories, I mean, there is a wealth of information that we, uh, during investigations, run into that is really not supposed to be there. And a lot of times, security and compliance officers don't actually even know that it's there because people just, out of convenience sake, will toss up little pieces of information here and there thinking that they're probably the only ones doing it. And that can really come back to bite you. Password. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So know where your data is. You can't, you can't secure it unless you know where it is and reduce your data. By reducing the data you store in random places, you are reducing your risk. Finally, make sure you're using strong two-factor authentication. Again, as Matt said, not all two-factor authentication is created equal. So consider using a 2FA app instead of relying on text messages or things like that. So with that, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Again, this is Sherry Davidoff and Matt Duran from LMG Security. Uh, like the channel, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at LMG Security.